I invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to our text for this Lord's Day. This is found in Daniel chapter 2, verses 36 through 39. <clears throat> Again, we have read these verses, at least through verse 38, but just to pick up the context, uh, we'll read verses 36 through uh, the first part of verse 39. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. History uh, is necessary for the correct interpretation of prophecy. For the fulfillment of prophecy occurs in history. Whether it is prophecy that has already been fulfilled or prophecy that shall be fulfilled in the future. Since uh, God is the one who ordains and sovereignly governs both prophecy and history, it behooves us to be students not only of prophecy, biblical prophecy, but it behooves us to be students of history as well. Because history ultimately focuses upon God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the end of all history. Redemption for Jesus Christ. Thus, as we consider Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation, I don't want to just quickly identify in this image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about and the different parts of that image, I don't want to simply pass quickly through each of those portions of that image. I want to spend some time developing the historical context related to each of those parts of the image so that, again, it's not simply that we are identifying metals and parts of this image and moving on, but that we truly understand these empires, these kingdoms occurred in history. And they were a part of God's plan. And we hope to be able to show and demonstrate that. So let us be good students here. Not history for history's sake, but history as God's providential lesson 
and teaching is what connection each of these four kingdoms have with God's people and therefore with God. The history of these kingdoms teaches us how God preserves and how God delivers his people even out of the clutches of the most powerful rulers and nations on earth. Granted, not without, at times, great hardship, trial, captivity, tribulation. These historical judgments and deliverances, however, are written, dear ones, for our instruction to give us hope that the same God that delivered his people of old in history is the same God who will deliver us, his people, now in history. Romans 15, 4, the Apostle Paul says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Dear ones, how do we continue to live without hope? God says he gives us hope about the future based upon what he has written in history and what he has brought to pass in history. Let us understand that Jesus ordains history. Man only records it. Jesus ordains it. Our main points today is we consider the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Our three main points. First main point, the connection between King Cyrus and God's people. Second main point, the connection between King Darius and God's people. And thirdly, the connection between King Ahasuerus and God's people. I'm going to take snippets of history and seek again to understand what God was doing so that we might have hope. The first main point in the connection between King Cyrus and God's people, this speaks of the deliverance of God's people from captivity. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great image, <clears throat> which Daniel revealed and is now in our text, in the passage before us, is in the process of interpreting the head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon. However, Babylon, as we noted last Lord's Day, uh, Babylon was to give way to another kingdom that in the image is represented by the chest and arms of silver, which represents the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Daniel explains this in Daniel chapter 2, verses 38 through 39. 
thou art this head of gold. And then verse 39, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. Inferior, in what sense inferior? The word inferior means lower. Uh, I would submit to you that, uh, that the interpretation is not that the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians was inferior as to uh, territory or power uh, than that of Babylon, but was rather inferior or lower in the position and order of the statue. The head of gold was Babylon. The, the kingdom that was inferior to that, lower than that that was next in line, was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. So inferior in that sense. Since these are successive kingdoms that conquer one another, the kingdom of a silver chest and arms signifies the kingdom of Medo-Persia, which conquered Babylon. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, you have rather than a statue with different metals, you have four beasts representing the same four kingdoms. Uh, the first beast is a, is a lion with wings, which represents, once again, Babylon. The next uh, beast uh, is a bear uh, that is higher, it says, on one side. is higher on one side, which speaks of uh, the elevation of Persia over Media. Though it was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, Persia was the greater of the two kingdoms. And so that bear that's higher on one side than the other speaks of the elevation of Persia. Just like uh, in chapter 8, uh, there is another dream uh, that uh, Daniel has in which there you have a ram, and uh, the ram has two, uh, two horns, and, uh, which again represents Media and Persia. One of the horns is greater, uh, larger than the other horn, which again is simply saying the same thing, that Persia was the greater of the two. Back to chapter 7, just briefly. In, in the mouth of that second beast, that bear, it says there are three ribs, which represent uh, three kingdoms that uh, were conquered by Medo-Persia. Babylon, uh, Lydia, and Egypt. So Cyrus was the first mighty king, just as Nebuchadnezzar was the... the the mighty king of the Babylonian, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So Cyrus was the first mighty king of the Persian Empire here, the Medes and the Persians, who brought to an end the rule of Babylon the Great in about 539 BC. Even more importantly, however, Cyrus was the one who delivered God's people 
from Babylonian captivity after 70 years away from their homeland. The city, you recall we had noted this uh, in an earlier sermon, but the city and walls of Babylon were, were huge, were massive, impressive. Herodotus, the Greek historian, says that they were about 300 feet uh, in height. Uh, the city was 15 miles square with walls around the entire city. Uh, the walls were 80 feet, uh, uh, he says again, about 80 feet thick, 35 feet deep into the ground. To the natural man, Babylon was thought to be unconquerable. And yet the Lord had prophesied through Isaiah the prophet about 150 years before Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians that Babylon would be conquered and in the prophecy of Isaiah he even mentions the name of the conqueror the one who would conquer and even mentions the means by which the conqueror would enter into the city. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. And we we'll just want to read a portion. Isaiah 44, beginning with verse 24. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish that confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited unto the cities of Judah. Ye shall be built and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That saith to the deep, Be dry and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Here the Lord prophesies, as I said, about 150 years before Cyrus takes Babylon. He prophesies while Jerusalem was still standing, Judah was still standing, the temple was still standing in all of its glory, he prophesies that uh, there is coming to Jerusalem a time of desolation and captivity. And the release from that captivity to which Israel is led 
would be by a ruler by the name of Cyrus, whom God calls here in verse 27, in verse 28, I'm sorry, my shepherd, my shepherd. And speaks of, as well, rivers being dried up. In verse 27. He it was, that is Cyrus, that would do all God's pleasure as it related to setting God's people free to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. When Isaiah prophesied this, as I said, Jerusalem and the temple were standing in all of their glory. An amazing prophecy, the actual name of the ruler and how he would accomplish this. Because it was indeed by way of drying up the river Euphrates that Cyrus was able to, to overcome those massive walls of Babylon, diverting the Euphrates River uh, into a huge reservoir in order to bring that to pass. But then we continue reading and Chapter 45 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 6. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee, and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. And there is none else. Once again, in verse 1, 45, verse 1, the Lord calls Cyrus his anointed. And likewise, we see in the same verse, verse 1, it speaks of there being opened to Cyrus two-leaved gates that shall not be shut. And again, the second way in which Cyrus was able to enter into Babylon was not only by way of diverting the Euphrates River, but was by way of entering through the gates, which unexpectedly, uh, which never happened 
those gates happened to be opened the night that the Medes and the Persians uh, entered into Babylon. So they, they did not have to storm the gates. They did not have to break down anything. They entered the gates uh, uh, because they were opened, as it prophesies here concerning Cyrus. Note that it is God here stated, not Cyrus, that would subdue nations. He would use Cyrus, but it was God who would bring about the subduing of nations to Cyrus, including Babylon, where God's people were held captive. God is here using Cyrus to accomplish his own holy purposes. According to the Jewish historian Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews, book, book 11, chapter 1, this prophecy from Isaiah was indeed shown to Cyrus. Who better to show Cyrus and point this out to Cyrus than Daniel, uh, who uh, was uh, ruling? He had been appointed by that same night by Belshazzar who had the handwriting upon the wall and Daniel was called to interpret the handwriting on the wall and for him doing so Belshazzar appointed Daniel to be one of the three presidents underneath the authority of the king and so again as Cyrus comes to Babylon who better uh, to point out that this was declared by God 150 years earlier than Daniel. In what sense was Cyrus, the heathen king of the Medes and the Persians, God's shepherd, and God's anointed. Well, first, let me say that these titles do not necessarily mean that Cyrus believed that Jehovah was God alone and that there was none other. As we see in verses uh, 4 through 5, he says, Though thou hast not known me, speaking to Cyrus, and in verse 5, though thou hast not known me. And so these titles do not necessarily mean that uh, Cyrus became a believer, that he acknowledged only Jehovah as the one true living God and served him from that point on. It was in fact the policy of Cyrus, contrary to that of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, to actually recognize uh, the various gods of the nations uh, over which uh, they ruled. The Mede and Persian kings ruled. Like Greece and like Rome of old, uh, Cyrus had a pantheon of gods that he used to his own political advantage. Kind of like politicians today who uh, will speak as a Christian when speaking to Christians, will speak as a Muslim when speaking to Muslims, will speak as a Jew when speaking to Jews. Uh, just depending on who they're before, they'll, they'll uh, 
use their remarks to cater to, uh, to the group that they're speaking to. Various heathen kings, uh, in fact, acknowledged uh, Israel's God to be stronger and greater than their own gods without disowning their own gods. Pharaoh in Exodus 8.8 basically says, uh, my gods can't remove the frogs. I'm coming to you. Please implore God to remove the frogs. And so likewise with the various uh, plagues that followed. He recognized that God was supreme, the one true living God. Uh, he, he had no problem in, in at least uh, tacitly acknowledging that he was supreme. But did he give up all of his idolatry because of that and serve the one true living God? Nebuchadnezzar, as we, I think, shall see, likewise, has uh, at the end of Daniel 2 a glowing testimony of the greatness of God. But in chapter 3, he erects this image and com commands all to bow down before it. And so likewise here, uh, with regard to uh, Cyrus, I believe, he acknowledges here in Ezra chapter 1, uh, verses 2 and 3, uh, he acknowledges the su supremacy and the greatness of the God of Israel. But at the same time, he does not disown his own gods. He does not disown his own idolatry. So this is basically, the, these types of confessions would be much like the confessions of the demons uh, during the time of Jesus Christ. Uh, they, for example, in Mark 5, 7, says, And cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Demons declaring this, and this happens many times. And so simply to declare God is supreme, but not to bow before him, not to acknowledge him, not to trust in him, not to cast away your idols that you serve, uh, is basically a demonic confession. Demons confess that God is supreme, that God is one, that God is more mighty and more powerful than they. But that, again, without repentance, without faith in God, is simply a demonic confession. The words of Calvin in his commentary on Isaiah 45.1, I think, would be instructive at this point. He says, although he, that is Cyrus, was instructed by Daniel, yet we do not read that he changed his religion. True, he regarded with reverence the God of Israel and considered him to be the highest, but he was not prompted by a sincere affection of the heart to worship him and did not advance so far as to forsake superstitions and idolatries. In fact, 
a clay cylinder, uh, a circular, like this, but a, a circular cylinder uh, was discovered, it's called Cyrus's uh, cylinder, uh, was discovered in the ruins of Babylon in 1879. And on this cylinder, it, it describes uh, the victory of Cyrus over Babylon. And Cyrus is speaking uh, at various points in the first person. And throughout the text of that cylinder, he attributes his victory to the mighty, to the supreme god Marduk, the supreme god of the Babylonians. This was his testimony to the Babylonians in order to win their friendship, in order to win their loyalty. Though he uses the same language, basically the same language as is found on that cylinder of Jehovah God in Ezra 1-2. Second, Cyrus was called by God, my shepherd, because he set God's people free from Babylonian captivity and sent them with the wealth of the Persians to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. So when God providentially appointed a ruler or a nation to accomplish his purposes, they became basically his tool. They became his messenger. They became his servant in accomplishing that task that he had given to them. Even if they didn't realize, even if they were not aware, even if they unwittingly, unwittingly were doing and accomplishing God's purposes. They were yet his servant. And here, my shepherd. That's what he says concerning the Assyrians in Isaiah 10.5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. So the Assyrians were the rod of anger that were to be brought against God's people in the northern kingdom, the rod of his anger. And third, Osiris was also called by God, as we saw, my anointed. Now, Cyrus was not God's anointed ruler because he owned the Lord alone to be his God, as we've noted, but because he was chosen by God for a very specific purpose, that is, to set God's people free to return to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple. In that sense, and in that sense alone, he was God's anointed. Can you imagine the joy, the rejoicing after 70 years of captivity, being set free those who did, not all did, uh, but uh, those who did leave that Babylonian captivity to return home. Uh, that uh, is spoken of, actually. We don't have to imagine what was going through their minds. 
It's actually the substance of what we read in Psalm 126, where it says, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. It was like, we can't believe this is happening. This is like a dream that we're being set free. Verse 2, Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. Cyrus doesn't receive the glory. The Lord receives the glory. Verse 3, The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. You know, it's easy to forget that our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God's anointed one, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, has delivered us from our far worse captivity than the Babylonian captivity. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were as good as dead in captivity. That's where we were going to die, is in our captivity to sin and in rebellion against God. And what we deserved not only was to spend time, all time, in that captivity, but all eternity in that captivity in hell. That's what we deserve. But our Lord Jesus Christ came and he set us free from that captivity. Set us free from our guilt to sin, the condemnation of sin, the power of sin over us, so that we are no longer under the dominion of sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are under grace, not under the law. The law can only condemn us. The law can set a standard of righteousness, but it can't save us. It is only the covenant of grace, which Jesus Christ has won and purchased for us, that can save us. Dear ones, don't act, therefore, my exhortation to you is don't act as though you are still in Babylon by the way you live, by the way you think, by the way you act. If you are a Christian, you have been set free from Babylon. You have been set free from Babylonian captivity by the greater Cyrus, by the Lord Jesus Christ even himself, who has delivered us, so that now we are free to love him, free to serve him, free to obey him and keep his commandments, not free to disobey him, not free to continue to live in that Babylonian captivity. The second connection Second main point, the connection between King Darius and God's people. Here we see the deliverance of God's people, not from captivity, which was with Cyrus, but here the deliverance of God's people from conspiracy. The deliverance of God's people from conspiracy. In Daniel chapter 6, 
And again, I'm simply summarizing uh, for you rather than having you turn there because we're going to uh, eventually make it to Daniel chapter 6. Uh, so I'm just summarizing for you what happens in Daniel 6. In Daniel 6 is related the true and inspired account of how a conspiracy was formed uh, among the princes of uh, Medo-Persia, uh, which led Daniel to be cast into a den of lions. The envy of those in power led them to conspire in order to entrap uh, Daniel by having the king sign a decree that only to him for 30 days were prayers to be offered. These princes and rulers knew that Daniel was a man of integrity. They couldn't find any fault in him. And so they had to conspire together to come up with something by which Daniel would be put in a position of having to say, no, I cannot do that. I must obey God. At which point they would grasp him. They would arrest him. They would bring him before the king. And he would have to suffer the consequences which they had laid out would be to be thrown to the lions. They really knew that Daniel wasn't going to, even at that, even if it meant being thrown to the lions, they knew, and that's why they conspired in this way, they knew Daniel wasn't going to, wasn't going to compromise his biblical faith and his practice of Jehovah God. The penalty was not even such that it caused Daniel to uh, fear. He feared God. Uh, not what man could do to him. He took God seriously. That God was in control. That God would watch over him. The king was apparently unaware of this conspiracy. Otherwise he would not have signed the decree because Daniel was, as we read in Daniel 6, he was the first president of the three presidents. He was directly under the king in power and authority. And so the decree went forth and the trap was set. However, Daniel did not alter his pattern his faithful pattern of worship in opening his window and praying toward Jerusalem. <clears throat> Daniel was not moved by the conspiracies of the wicked. And for his faithfulness to the Lord, he was cast into the lion's den. The king, you'll recall, was, was greatly grieved and he fasted through the night. And when morning arrived, he quickly made his way to the lion's den and cried out in Daniel 6.20, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? To which Daniel replied in Daniel 6.22, 
My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lion's mouths that they have not hurt me. Those who conspired against Daniel, as well as their families, were cast into the lion's den and were crushed to death, it says, before even reaching the ground. When Daniel heard about the conspiracy notice, he didn't go to the king. He went to the king of kings. He went to the Lord to pray when he heard of this conspiracy. And the Lord heard his prayer. Note the testimony of King Darius in Daniel chapter 6, verses 25 through 27. After the fact, then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth. Who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Again, the pagan kings are moved by God here to acknowledge the greatness, the glory of the God of the Bible, even to the heathen nations, even if they do not themselves repent of their idolatry and turn to the one true living God to worship and adore him. He simply becomes a member of their pantheon of gods. There are so many conspiracies being spun by the wicked in high places today and have been uh, even since the time of Christ, before the time of Christ, as we see here in Daniel 6. Conspiracies spun by the wicked against the godly who stand for Jesus Christ and his truth and who will not submit themselves to the plots of the rich and the powerful. Dear ones, we need not fear these conspiracies, these plots, because they abound, no doubt. Uh, In fact, uh, Solomon says in Proverbs 4.16, speaking of the wicked, for they sleep not except they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall. Uh, These people lie awake all night, plotting, spinning their webs to take down the righteous, to take us down, to destroy us. These conspiracies abound. God knows them all. God sees them all. They're not hiding anything from our God. 
And he sets them up in high places and causes them to, to dig pits and snares for the righteous, for the godly, so as they themselves might fall into the pits that they have dug for us, God's people. Let us not fear, dear ones. Our God rules. He reigns. The Lord is with us, and we, not, we need not fear what man can do unto us, Paul says in Hebrews 13, 6. It's easy, dear ones, to be consumed with the conspiracies of the wicked, even to the neglect of our communion with the King of Kings. To be so overwhelmed. I'm not saying it's wrong to read or to be aware of these things. But the danger is that we become overwhelmed. We become overwhelmed by those conspiracies rather than being overwhelmed by the glory and the greatness and the majesty and the power and the holiness and the righteousness of our God and our Savior who delivers us, his people and has delivered his people for ages in the past and will do so now and in the future as well because these things are written for our instruction that we might have hope. The third and final connection. The connection between King Ahasuerus and God's people. And this speaks of the deliverance of God's people from annihilation, extinction. In the inspired book of Esther, it is related how God delivered his people from the wicked plot of Haman, an officer of King Ahasuerus, king of the Medes and the Persians. Haman sought the utter destruction of all God's people throughout the Persian Empire. Not just uh, those in the capital city of Shushan or Susa, but, uh, but throughout the whole empire. This account likely, that we find in Esther, this account likely happened some 60 years after Cyrus set God's people free from Babylonian captivity. King Ahasuerus is likely known in historical records as King Xerxes, King Xerxes I. Persian kings often had more than one name uh, that they used, one that was uh, used more in the official records and one that might be used in the courts. Ahasuerus reigned from approximately 485 to 465 BC. Uh, he was the same uh, Xerxes I that suffered such a heavy loss of men at the Battle of Thermopylae uh, in 480 BC. You remember that battle at the hands of the 300 Spartans in Greece uh, and were. Uh, subsequently, Xerxes I subsequently defeated at the Battle of Salamis. 
probably after that defeat, he comes back uh, to his uh, capital city of Shushan and the events of that we find here in the book of Esther occur. <clears throat> God exalted both Esther, whose Hebrew name was Hadassah, a poor Jewish orphan, and exalted her cousin Mordecai to places of great influence and authority in, in Persia. Esther becoming queen, Mordecai becoming the prime minister, Jewish prime minister uh, in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Not only did Daniel hold a place like that, Mordecai did as well. Haman plotted, you'll recall, to exterminate all of God's people because of his hatred for Mordecai, who would not bow before Haman and honor him. Haman was so incensed and so upset and so angry with rage that he sought to wipe off the face of the earth, all of God's people. In this particular case, we're not simply looking at a conspiracy here, a conspiracy to entrap one individual, but we are looking at a conspiracy to destroy and exterminate and annihilate all of God's people from off of the face of the earth. It was through the divine intervention of Esther and Mordecai that God's people were preserved. It was through this providential preservation that God subsequently sent Ezra to bring reformation, to complete the temple, to bring reformation there uh, in uh, Jerusalem in 457 BC, and then subsequently uh, sent Nehemiah in 444 BC to complete the rebuilding of the walls in the city of Jerusalem. In other words, there would have been no Ezra to reform, there would have been no Nehemiah to rebuild if there was no Esther and if there was no Mordecai to stand faithful and true and to bring to an end this wicked plot to exterminate all of God's people. Not only were God's people preserved, but Haman and his sons were hanged on the very gallows that were intended to hang Mordecai upon. Those who sought to exterminate God's people were the very ones that were exterminated. The gates of hell, dear ones, Jesus says, shall not prevail against his faithful church. In Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 25, section 5, which likewise confirms the words of Jesus just mentioned in Matthew 16, 18, 
There shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. We need not fear that the faithful in the true church will be annihilated and exterminated. The Lord will preserve just as he did his people at the time of King Ahasuerus. He will preserve his people now. He will preserve his church, his faithful church in the future. And so God gives us at least these three connections between God's people and the empire of the Medes and the Persians. That empire of silver chest and arms in the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. And that great empire, as we'll see, God willing, next Lord's Day, that great empire of the Medes and the Persians fell to Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire in 333 BC. So let us, in closing, let us not be surprised that we are hated and despised as Christians who boldly stand for Jesus Christ and his truth. Jesus, in fact, said that if they hated him, if they despised him, if they persecuted him, they're going to do the same to us when we stand with him. So let us not be shocked. Let us not be surprised. Let us be prepared, rather. But also, let us be prepared to be delivered. Not only prepared to suffer, but prepare, be prepared to be delivered because God will deliver his people. Whether it's in our generation or a subsequent generation, God will deliver his people. Remember, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. We can't reign with him if we're not willing to suffer with him. We expect the world to hate us, but when that mockery and when that bitterness comes from those who profess to be Christians, that's a truly painful experience. It hurts far worse than to be persecuted and mocked by those who don't even claim to be Christians. But the Lord encourages us don't worry about those who oppose because it's for your good. Whatever you suffer, it is for your good. It's for your sanctification. It's for your growth in Jesus Christ. Rather, be faithful unto death. Walk that narrow path that leads to life in loving him and obeying him. And Jesus promises to give you a crown of life that will never, ever pass away. Amen. Let us stand in prayer. Our Father, thank Thee for 
the hope that thou dost give unto us. Through what is written and recorded in thy word. For Jesus does ordain history, even if he uses men to record it. It is all working out according to thine own holy purposes. We praise thee that we are part of that great plan, that great plan of redemption, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us walk according to thy will. Let us walk worthy to the calling of Jesus Christ. Let us, Lord, not live as those who want to remain in Sodom and Gomorrah, remain in Babylon, remain in Egypt, but our God is those who want to depart into that glorious freedom that is ours in our land of promise, our spiritual land of promise, wherein we are free to worship thee and love thee and obey thee and, and to walk in all of thy commandments with a holy desire. And though there is a continual battle with the flesh, Lord, uh, even that we're promised will not overcome us. Because even that has been dealt a deathly blow by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that thou would Dismiss us, uh, Lord, as we now draw to the close with these truths ringing in our ears, dwelling in our hearts and our minds. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.